All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, as always, very, very thankful to be able to worship together and to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, if you're new or visiting, uh, we all want to welcome you as always. And uh, I, I think it wasn't mentioned, but we have a Sunday Q&A after. So if you are curious about anything in the sermon or the text that we read from scripture, or you just have any questions about Christianity, uh, right after this worship time, if you just stick around in the Zoom room, uh, I'd be more than happy to answer any questions or even flesh out little aspects of the sermon text that we couldn't get to. So that being said, uh, we are going through a series through the book of Genesis. And let me take a quick moment to review uh, what we went over last week in chapter 25, because it does provide kind of the introductory context to what we're going to be reading today. So in chapter 25, uh, hit the ground running, we saw the Abrahamic story kind of ended and the narrative now shifted over to a, a new character, Abraham's son named Isaac. And Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, had two sons named Esau and Jacob. And just to give you a quick review, Esau was the firstborn. And the text tells us that Isaac favored him because he was more of a, a man's man, if I can put it that way. It says that he was an outdoors man who enjoyed the outdoors, who enjoyed hunting physically. It literally, he's described as being a hairy person. <laughs> and Isaac liked him more because he liked to eat of the game that Esau would hunt. Jacob was the second son born soon after who Rebecca favored. He was more of the mama's boy. Uh, the text tells us that he was unlike Esau, more of a domestic homebody and in, in probably more introverted and quiet in nature. And what we saw last week is we took a big macro view of God's sovereign plan and will that despite both Esau and Jacob being very flawed individuals, God, out of his sovereign will, made it clear to both Rebecca and Isaac before they were even born that Jacob would be the chosen covenant offspring and that the older would serve the younger. So with that context in mind, let's open up our Bibles or our apps to chapter 27. It's a very uh, popular and famous story, uh, but even if you haven't heard it before, I think you will find it interesting. So I'm going to read for us from chapter 27, verse 1, all the way through verse 29, although I will reference the rest of the chapter in the message. So uh, it reads as a story, so definitely just read it like a story and take it in as we uh, read God's word together, starting from Genesis chapter 27, verse 1. This is the reading of God's word. Now, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food. They might, I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. Verse 14. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. 
and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Verse 26. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near me and kiss me, my son. So he came near him and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Now, this story, it reads and it feels a lot like an old Korean drama in a lot of ways because it has to deal with this idea of the right of the firstborn. The narrative is clearly filled with familial distrust and deception. And that's what makes Korean dramas so juicy and good, right? <laughs> and let me give you a simple summary of what's going on here in this narrative, the TLDR version. We are told that Isaac, he's getting old. He's getting old. He's blind. And he kind of senses his death is nearing. So he calls his firstborn Esau, who he favored, and says, can you hunt game? Basically, the favorite Esau special soup that his father loves. And he says, can you do that? Prepare it for me so that I can bless you before I die. And as he tells this to Esau, Rebecca, you can imagine she overhears. She overhears this secret conversation that Isaac has with Esau. And she gets upset and angry. Why? Because she favors Jacob. And she wants her favorite son, Jacob, to get the blessing. So she devises this plan to trick Isaac into thinking that Jacob is actually Esau. It's really messed up if you think about it, taking advantage of her blind husband and father. But she wants Jacob to receive the blessing. So she tells Jacob, Jacob, go get me two good goats because I'm going to kind of make the delicious meal similar to how Esau would prepare it so you can trick your father into thinking that it's you. So Jacob raises a concern. And at this point, it's not a concern of, well, is this right before God? His concern is, but I don't know if this plan is foolproof. What if I get caught? Literally, he says, because Esau, my older brother, he's hairy and I am not, right? The text literally says Jacob was a smooth man. I guess that just means that he was not hairy, right? And he says, what if I get caught and then... Isaac, my father, gets upset and curses me instead of blesses me. So Rebecca says, you're right. Let's make a more comprehensive plan. Not only will I make the food, but I'm going to dress you in Esau's clothes that we have at home. I want you to look like, feel like, and smell like Esau. And in fact, I'm also going to put goat skin on you on the smooth areas so that your father can touch those areas and make it feel like you're hairy like Esau. And all this is happening while Esau is out hunting game. Right. So they have it's like a feeling of Russian urgency to get this done. And they they devise this elaborate plan. Why? Also, Jacob can receive the blessing. Now, if you're listening to the story carefully, whatever this blessing is, 
It is clearly very, very important because the entire story revolves around blessing, right? In fact, the word for blessing, this Hebrew word Barak, it shows up 22 times in this chapter alone. And based off the way that they are coveting after it and seeking after it, you would think that this blessing is, is a treasure worth millions of dollars. And I think when we flesh it out, you'll kind of realize it's actually worth more in a sense. And here's where I do have to give credit where it's due. Uh, this is not an unfamiliar story to me, but I think Pastor Tim Keller opened it up in ways that I had never seen before. So I want to give credit where it's due. But with the idea of blessing in mind, we're going to look at this story in four main ways, which is number one, the significance of blessing. Why is it such a big deal? Why is it so important? Because we don't really use that terminology in, in the Western world. Number two, our desire for blessing. Three, the wrong path to blessing. And then four, the path towards true blessing. That's how we're going to look at it. Okay, so first, the significance of blessing. So it's obvious based on the text, Isaac's blessing is a big deal based off the text. I personally, though, had a hard time grasping why this blessing is so significant and even wrapping my head around the way that Rebecca and Jacob viewed this blessing, right? They almost view it as something like a possession that can be stolen. That's kind of what they're doing. They're saying this possession or blessing is going to be given to Esau, but Jacob, why don't you swoop in and steal it as if it can even be something that's stolen. That's kind of weird, right? If you think about it. And that's where I think it helps to know here in the West, the Western culture that we live in, the idea of blessing, it's not really, it's not really fleshed out at all. When we bless someone, it's like when they sneeze and we say, God bless you, right? It's like a very shallow well-wish that we give. I think it's very equivalent to something like just encouraging someone or saying something nice or blessing someone. So blessing, it doesn't mean anything sniffing to us in the Western world. But that's where, if that was what blessing is, it makes no sense in the narrative because it's obviously much more weighty than that. And it wasn't something that was just given casually like an encouragement or just well wishes. And that's where the other half of my identity, my Korean Eastern side, actually better, I think, captures and understands the idea of blessing. And I know a lot of us, we are kind of multicultural. We are Asian American, a lot of us. So I think you might understand, but uh, I can only speak to my experience. So at Kore Korean weddings, for example, there is this tradition and ritual that a lot of Korean Americans still practice today, and it's called pebek. And what it is is basically when this newly married couple comes together, they have this ceremony where they go before their parents and their grandparents and older elders and relatives, and they basically are in there to receive blessing from them. This is not something that just happens regularly or weekly, but in a significant moment, significant individuals offer words of blessing, whether it's, you know, we wish you a long and happy life. We wish you many, many children. And so Eastern culture grasps the idea of blessing a little bit deeper, I would say. Or another example that uh, I know a lot of Asians do is on New Year's, there's a tradition where children will go to their grandparents or the parents' house, they'll bow before them, and they'll pronounce blessing, right? They'll say, in this new year, we bless you and all your endeavors and things like that. Or even in the Western world, a universal thing that happens when a boyfriend wants to marry their girlfriend, which is usually the most frightening day for any man, <laughs> top three most frightening moments for sure, is when you want to make your girlfriend your fiance, you go to her father, why? To get his hand of blessing, right? To get his favor, to get his uh, approval and affirmation over you taking his daughter to be your own. I think all of these, it carries a closer idea to what blessing was viewed as back then. So biblically speaking, the idea of receiving a blessing, obviously, it was much more than just kind words, much more weighty, and especially weighty if it came from a significant figure like your father, 
for your father in that patriarchal society to bless you, that was probably the top of the list in terms of weightiness. And in the context of the story, the blessing that Isaac wants to give Esau is not just a generic blessing, but the text tells us in the beginning, Isaac senses that his end is, end is near. He's going to die soon. And so he's giving kind of his final blessing and final will. And historically speaking, ancient cultures during that time, they believed that the final oral blessing of the father was legally binding in a lot of the ways that today's wills are. To the point where if as a son, you can prove that your father had given a final verbal oral blessing to you, the court of law would consider that legally blinding. That was a very significant action going on here. It's not something simply that was just given out or something that could be simply taken back. And in verse 27, 29, Isaac actually ends up blessing Jacob. And we see what that blessing entailed. It entailed at least four things. It entailed a blessing of prosperity, right? In verse 28, it says, may God give you the dew of heaven. In, in Hebrew metaphoric language, dew was always the representative of God's goodness. It was the main source of water during rainless famines and summer months. So Isaac is pronouncing a blessing of prosperity. Second, it was power. Look at verse 29. Let the peoples serve you. Let, let me bless you to be in a position of power. Number three was preeminence. Verse 29, be Lord over your brothers. So to have this kind of first priority as being preeminent. And lastly, a blessing of protection. Verse 29, cursed be everyone who curses you. So that's what the blessing entailed that Jacob so sought after and that the firstborn was rightfully inheriting. And put it another way in language that maybe is easier for us to digest, Isaac's words of blessing gave a profound sense of three things, identity, security, and favor. And what we see on a more general level through this story is words of blessing can be very, very impactful and formative in influencing how we live our lives with respect to, I think, those three things, identity, security, and favor. For example, growing up, one of the sayings that I heard a lot that I don't think is as commonly used is the phrase, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, I didn't know this, but did you know the origin of that phrase was it was a children's rhyme that was created to help students overcome verbal bullying and name calling in school. That's where it originated from. And I think nowadays, to be honest, you don't really hear people use that phrase anymore. You know why? Because it is a lie. <laughs> it is 100% false. I mean, the first half is true. Sticks and stones can definitely break your bones and cause bodily harm. But especially in this social media age where you see people falling into legitimate depression just because of words that were said social media wise, we all know, man, words can do far more than sticks and stones can do. And the Bible actually verifies and attests to this, that you don't even have to be a Christian to know words of blessing or words of condemnation are formative and weighty in our lives. Like if you didn't know, studies show even though physical bullying is harsh, it's actually verbal bullying that results in much deeper and long-term scars that children almost inevitably always carry into their adulthood. And I'm sure for some of you guys, it's the same thing. When you were in second grade, like, why do you not remember when you had a, you know, a, a scratch or you broke your arm, but you remember when someone called you fat or ugly or, or said something to you that you still hold to you to this day? Why? Because it's formative in your identity and your security and your sense of belonging. And so I would say those scars revolve around those three aspects of identity or your lack of security or lack of, aka insecurity, 
or the feeling that you are unique and favored and loved, or that you are the opposite. You are completely forgotten. You are insignificant and you don't have anything meaningful about who you are. So words in general are powerful, but words in specific contexts are more powerful. A simple word of affirmation or a word of condemnation can literally shape and alter the trajectory of a child's life and identity, especially if it comes from your parents. And in that society, particularly if it came from your father. So just a side unrelated application for parents, your words matter. <laughs> That's very, very clear. You are literally shaping your child's identity, security, and favor. Now, that's that aside. So what we are dealing with in our text is not a mere simple word that they're going after, but it is a father's blessing to his firstborn son. So it is extremely significant and extremely weighty, which leads to the second point. We all have a desire for blessing. Now, as I read the story, it's very clear, Jacob, he's going through great lengths to obtain this blessing to deceive his father, Isaac. But the question is, why? Why is he going through this? And that's where an interesting clue in the text tells us. In verse 18, when Isaac asks Jacob to verify his identity, right? So he's kind of going through all these checkpoints because Isaac is suspicious. And if you're curious why, uh, I have some thoughts on that. You can stay after in the Q&A. But when he asks, who are you, my son? In verse 18, Jacob responds and says, I am Esau, your firstborn. Now, why is that interesting? Because later in verse 32, when Esau returns from hunting and he goes before his father and he says, who are you, my son? Esau responds, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. What is the significance there? The ordering of words matters a lot. You see, in Hebrew grammar, the last word of the sentence is where the emphasis lies. And in Jacob's response, his emphasis in his response to who he is before Isaac is, I am the firstborn. I am your firstborn. Why does this matter? Remember back in ancient culture, the firstborn was the primary position of inheritance, of love, and of favor. It was without question the firstborn that the father would bless and show special favor to. In the case of Jacob and Esau, it was clear that Isaac favored Esau, his firstborn, and had a special, unique love for him. So you have to imagine that Jacob probably grew up and lived with a sense of jealousy, maybe even insecurity, knowing that I am second tier for my father. Esau is, a, is the loved one. He's the one in the special position of being the firstborn. Uh, this is a silly illustration, but uh, I am the youngest of three siblings in my family. If there's any younger children out there, uh, shout out to you. You might relate to me a little bit, but I'm the youngest of three. And the firstborn and oldest in my family is my older brother. And I remember in our earlier stages of life, uh, my dad, so if you don't know, Korean culture definitely, you know, jives with this idea of firstborn son being important because they have a literal name and title for it. It's this word called Changnam. No one else is called Changnam except the eldest and firstborn child. And so my dad would call my brother, oh, my, my Changnam. Never call me that. Why? Because I ain't the firstborn. And so he would basically talk about him and relate to him in a way that gave off the impression, oh, wow, this guy has a special position in favor in our culture, in my family, to my dad. And I remember uh, when my brother first got into college, he went to UCSD, shout out Tritons. Both of my parents made it a really big deal in our family. They made it a really big deal to block out an entire weekend to drive down together as a family with him to San Diego to help him to move in. And they made a whole spiel about how he is making the family proud and how, you know, back in my parents' day, they barely could survive. But now, you know, our, our, our Changnam was 
you know, going to college and what an amazing feat that was. And, and every time he would come home on the weekends, my mom would always cook him like a hot, warm meal to basically symbolize, as we all know, Asians moms, they don't say I love you. They cook you food. That's how they say I love you. So they would cook and symbolize how proud they were of him. And here I am, youngest son. I'm just mentally taking notes of all this, right? Because I'm passive. <laughs> I'm, I suppress. So, I, you know, that's just me. Now, fast forward to when I got into college, guess who helped me move in? Nobody. <laughs> I moved myself in. Guess who made a big deal of me getting into college? Nobody. My parents forgot that I got into college. They're like, where were you? I was like, I went to, I went to orientation for college. Like, oh, cool. How was it? My family had a very been there, done that mentality. And guess who made me food when I came on the weekends? Nobody. There were countless times when I would come home, I would have to like call my sister because the door's locked <laughs> and I can't get in. And I would just microwave myself some leftovers. And you see, normally I don't make a big deal out of things like that because I'm naturally more of a suppressor and I'm like, oh, it's, it is what it is. So I just suppress my emotion. But I remember there was one specific time I had a very, very tough week. And those three things were getting combated that I mentioned. I was feeling super insecure in my self-worth. Uh, I was feeling very not favored by my friends and by society. So I came home and I remember asking my mom if she could make me some food. And she did what she always did. She's like, oh yeah, uh, there's some leftovers in the fridge. And so she microwaved me a plate of leftovers. And I kid you not, I just started breaking down crying. I don't cry much, but I literally just started breaking down. And my parents were so confused, right? They were shocked. And as embarrassing as it is, when I finally conjured up what I was feeling, I remember in my broken Korean, when they asked me what's going on, me telling them, how come you only cook hot food for Hyunga, which is the term for older brother, but I only get leftovers. That's what I told them, because that's what I was feeling in the moment. You see, the reason I felt that way was because in my mental notebook, I kind of jotted down that, wow, the firstborn must have a special place in the heart of my parents. Because even though they love us all, they seem to have a unique, special love and favor for the eldest. That's the picture of what Jacob saw. And that's the picture of what Jacob desired. He went through this elaborate plan because he wanted his father, Isaac, to look at him and say, you are my firstborn. You are special. I have a special love and favor for you. I want to bless you. Regarding this, Pastor Tim Keller says, better than I ever could. So I'm going to put it in here so you guys can see it. It's a little bit of a longer quote, and I'll read it for us. It says, this is what every human being wants more than anything else. We all want the blessing of the firstborn. No one wants general love from general people. We want unique love from uniquely special people in our own lives. We need a person we look up to to say to us, there is no one like you. You are special. You are unique. I love you more than anyone else. We all want and need this. We cannot bless ourselves. Our self-worth cannot come from ourselves. We need a smart person to say we are smart. We need a good person to say we are good in order to feel good. This is the blessing of the firstborn. We all need this. We all need blessing. That's what led Jacob to do what he does, which leads to the third point, the wrong path to blessing. Jacob's path towards blessing, the more I think about it, is a tragic one. Because if you think about the measures he took to secure his blessing, it is a very, very sad story. Just picture it, okay? In order to receive blessing, you know what Jacob does? He pretends to be somebody else. He wears someone else's clothes. 
He tries to mimic someone else's physique. He tries to sound like someone else. In other words, Jacob's path towards blessing was to be someone that he's not. And this is where I think a lot of us can relate to Jacob. Because a lot of us live our lives in that way to try to get blessing from others and from the world at the cost of being true to who we really are. And that's twofold. That can mean either in hiding aspects of ourselves that we feel will, that we fear will prevent us from receiving blessing, or on the flip side, fabricating things that are not true about ourselves that we feel will earn us blessing. You see, in Jacob's case, he thought he needed to be like Esau in order to be truly loved and to receive blessing. And similarly, I think for a lot of us today, we all dress up in ways that we think will gain us blessing. You know, for some of us, it's in our dating or even marriage relationship. We can't help but feel like we have to hide our true self and dress ourselves up however we think we need to in order to receive blessing and acceptance from our significant other. And this is not a one-time thing. This is a daily struggle for a lot of us. And for others of us, I think especially our church, it's in our Christianity. We dress up to look and seem like good Christians so that we won't be judged. That's why we don't have a strong culture of confession. We don't have a strong culture of, you know, repentance with one another. But everyone kind of dresses up to do what we got to do to feel like we're being blessed. So people will look at us and we feel accepted. And that's the same exact reason why so many people in our church included struggle with living a double life of Christians. Because guess what? At work, you got to dress different. With your other friends, with your non-Christian co-workers, you got to dress another way to feel blessed. And that's where we need to consider why Jacob's path toward blessing was ultimately the wrong path. Okay, think about it and put yourself in Jacob's shoes as you are entering your blind father's room. You enter carrying the fake Esau special. It's kind of a funny picture if you think about it. With goat skin duct taped all around you. With you practicing your lower registered voice. And you go in and Isaac asks, who are you? And Jacob responds, I'm Esau, eat of my game. Both things that Jacob knows are lies. And Isaac furthers and says, how'd you find this so quickly? And Jacob responds, because the Lord your God granted me success. Now he's involving God into his deception. Isaac asks, thirdly, well, come near to me so that I may feel you. And imagine you're Jacob pulling up your fabricated hairy forearm, which he knows is not his. He must think this is ridiculous. His father touches it. And Isaac is still suspicious. And what seals the deal for him is in verse 26 to 27, Isaac says, come near to me and kiss me. And when he does, the ultimate affirmation for Isaac is that he smells Esau's clothing and garments and he delights and blesses him and beams because he's like, ah, this is my firstborn son Esau, whom I love. And here's where the blessing, though legitimate, is paradoxically a great tragedy. Because who is it that Isaac is really blessing? Think about that. You see, in the most literal sense, yes, Jacob is the one being blessed. But not in Isaac's mind. In Isaac's mind, he's blessing Esau. And you know who knows that better than anyone else? Jacob. In other words, Jacob knew that the loving and proud demeanor and blessing of his father was not truly for him. It was for the dressed up version of him. What we learn from Jacob is that any path of blessing that requires you to be someone else to get it is the wrong path. Because if you have to dress up to get blessed, you cannot and you will not experience true blessing. Why? Because you forever will know and feel like a fraud. 
You will feel like you are hiding. You're hiding your sin. You're hiding your mistakes, your weaknesses, and everything else that will make you feel like it will be revoked, your blessing, if it's revealed. Not only that, on a larger scale, this wrong path of blessing in the life of Jacob and even in our own lives always, always, always will inevitably lead to negative consequence and hurt. You see, in the case of Jacob, the story goes on and says the family as a result of this deception literally falls apart and implodes. Why? Esau returns, finds out what Jacob did, grows in hatred and bitterness and says, as soon as our father passes away, I'm going to kill Jacob. Rebecca, this is the saddest part of the story I didn't realize. Rebecca tells Jacob, why don't you go away to your uncle's house for a couple days so your brother Esau can cool down a little bit. You know how long it takes Esau to cool down? 20 years. You know what that means? Rebecca never sees Jacob ever again. That's the last time Jacob sees his mom alive. That's the consequence. And Jacob himself ends up getting separated from his family. When we try to force our way into receiving and earning blessing, what this tells us, we will often hurt others and ourselves in the process because that path by definition, means that instead of loving and serving people, we end up having to use them to fulfill that desire. There's no way around it. So what's the solution? What do we do? There's this desire and our natural path to wanting to get it ends up causing chaos and hurt and it doesn't even work in the long run. What's the final point? The path to true blessing. You see, a false blessing by definition is to receive affirmation for being someone you aren't. Then vice versa, a true blessing must mean by definition that you receive affirmation for being who you truly are. That is terrifying for a lot of us. And that's where it's important to scale back to Genesis overall. So I love that we're going through a series and realize the purpose of God's covenant in the first place. Back in chapter 12, when God showed up to Abraham, he promised that through Abraham's seed, he would bless the earth right? Hopefully that word bless and blessing has new meaning to you now. So he said, hey, the fundamental purpose of this covenant is that through you and your seed, I'm going to bring blessing upon all people. Well, guess what? That messianic promised covenant seed that starts in Abraham and has moved to Isaac and is now moved to Jacob. Well, now Daisy Link chain all the way through redemptive history, through messed up crooks and people, and it'll end up through this man named Jesus. And this man named Jesus is going to be born through the Abrahamic seed. And unlike every other fallen human before him, guess what? Jesus of Nazareth is the one person who is actually deserving and worthy of true blessing and honor for who he actually is. He has no shame to hide. He has no sin to cover up. And he is legitimately blessed in every sense of the word. In fact, an often underemphasized title of Jesus that's actually theologically sound and mentioned throughout the New Testament is that Jesus is the firstborn. He's the firstborn of all creation, according to Colossians 1.15. Hebrews 1.6 says when God brings the firstborn into the world. And this is not just to say that he is the firstborn in the sense because he was not begotten. But what this means is that Jesus is the true firstborn of God who is worthy of all the inheritance, the favor, the love, the prosperity, the power, the security that comes by virtue of being firstborn. He deserves rightfully God's limitless blessing. And what we see in the gospel is Jesus does a reverse version of what Jacob did. Jesus knowing that we all long to receive blessing, but simultaneously knowing that we're never going to find it on our own, he forges a new path for us. And you see what 
while Jacob puts on Esau's clothing to receive his blessing, Jesus puts on our flesh to receive our curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, hanging upon that cross, the firstborn of all creation, Jesus clothed himself with our sin and our flesh. And when God the Father looked upon Jesus Christ, his first and only begotten son on the cross, all he saw, smelled, felt, and heard was the face and stench of a sinner that deserves nothing but judgment and curse. But by taking the curse that we deserve, Jesus, what he did is he forged a new path to blessing. The only path to true blessing, which is what? Don't fabricate clothing and dress yourself up, but cover yourself not with material clothing that Jacob did with Esau, but by faith cover ourselves with the blood, the righteousness of Christ. And unlike Jacob, who had to approach his father Isaac with fear, anxiety, and timidity, Hebrews tells us we can approach our father and his throne of grace with confidence. And guess what? God's not blind like Isaac was. He sees everything. He sees us clearly for who we are. And in Christ, by faith, he literally says that he sees, smells, feels, touches us as if we were literally the firstborn Christ. I love this fact. In a physical family, there can only be one firstborn, a.k.a. I'll never be the firstborn of my family, no matter what I want to do or try to do. But in God's spiritual family, Hebrews 12, 23 says that in the church, the church is filled with firstborns. Did you know that? It's an amazing theology that in Christ, Hebrews 12, 23 says that we are all firstborns. We are all privileged with identity, security, and special favor. Jew, Gentile, male, female, sinner. It does not matter. In Christ, we are all seen and privileged as the firstborns in Christ. And we're going to see that Jacob's understanding also of blessing, it's going to mature and it's going to evolve as he journeys with God. And we're going to go through that in the couple chapters to come. But in light of two, the text today, two quick practical applications as we close. One is what not to do, hopefully. And two is what to do. Number one, and this is something I'm taking dearly to my heart. Stop dressing up to be blessed. Stop dressing up to be blessed. Can you really try to consider if you're searching out searching for blessing outside of God. And by, by blessing, I mean, again, those three things of identity, security, affirmation, and favor. Whether it be through your career and your boss or your spouse or significant other or your friends or even your parents, what the Bible makes clear is if you try to dress up to find blessing, it is a path that ultimately is a curse in disguise because it will curse your own sense of self-worth. It will curse your relationships. It will curse your pursuit and path in wanting to follow God, and will only lead to, like Jacob's case, implosion, hurt, and pain. So stop dressing up to be blessed. But number two, and this is something I really pray and wish for our church, be a blessing. Be a blessing. This is the Abrahamic covenant in a nutshell. God's purpose in blessing his people was never so that they can just feel warm, fuzzy, affirmed, and, oh, wow, God really loves me. No, 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 no. It was always for the purpose of blessing others. That was the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless you so that you can now bless. And as cliche as it is, the Abrahamic covenant call was rooted in this cliche statement that you can only give that which you have. You can only give that what you have. This is the biblical formula for how we are to live in Christ. That's what it says. Hey, we are able to love 
because he has first loved us. We are filled to now go. We are able to forgive because he has forgiven us. We give out of that which we've been given in Christ. And most fundamentally, we are able to bless because we are blessed, as Ephesians says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The idea is literally that the the floodgates of heaven have opened up in blessing to us that we should no longer even need or desire to find that outside of Christ. In fact, there's so much of it being poured upon us now that how can we not go and bless others selflessly and genuinely without using them, but literally just to serve and to love like our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ did. So what what happens? We are liberated from having to see people as a means to feel blessed. And now in Christ, we have the freedom to legitimately go and bless simply for the sake of loving and serving and blessing people. And I guarantee you, when you bless someone like that, they will feel it. It's different. It's different. And when you have a church that's blessing and loving one another like that, the Bible says people will say, who is this Jesus? How are you guys able to do that? What is this unconditional love that I feel? So all that is to say, my hope and prayer is that, man, can we be a church that by faith becomes so convinced of our blessed firstborn status in Christ? That instead of chasing identity, we have it. Instead of being insecure, we are rooted. And mostly instead of thinking that we are forgotten, that we understand that we are not only favored, but we are most favored by our God in Christ. And only then I think we can be effective as ambassadors and witnesses to the gospel and legitimately be a blessing to anyone that comes through our doors. Let's pray together.